And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. This morning, of course, it's Wednesday. That means it's hump day. You're halfway there, right? I mean, we're already starting to wind this up. So glad you're here this morning. Of course, uh, Danny Ratliff, Certified Financial Planner, joining me this morning as well. Talk a little bit about the Biden Child Tax Credit. Now, this is an interesting issue that's coming up here. Um, if we look back over the course of, of really the last two years, um, the market's been doing exceptionally well, right? The economy's recovered very nicely from the lows of the, of the pandemic-driven shutdown. Um, you know, we, we've got employment, back to full employment. You know, no matter how, really, no matter how you look at it, we're, we're back there. Record low jobless claims, uh, unemployment rate at 4.2%. You know, really just, you know, you look at across the economy, things seem to have gotten back to normal, economically speaking. But a lot of this that's been going on has been driven by a tremendous amount of stimulus being put into the economy, right? So, you know, back in March of 2020, the government intervened with you know, $1,400 checks. We expanded child tax credits. We're sending money to households directly. Uh, the Federal Reserve also jumping into the mix with buying bond ETFs to help stabilize the bond market, uh, bailing out corporations, uh, $120 billion a month in QE. So a tremendous amount of liquidity uh, being put into the economy, $5 trillion in more debt, You know, a total of $12 trillion spent um, over the course of the last two years in general across the entire swath of the economy. So a very, very aggressive monetary push. Now, most of that, you know, expanded unemployment benefits, people sitting at home collecting uh, extra more money on unemployment benefits than they were getting paid working. That's all gone now. The last remaining tinge of money going into households right now is this child tax credit. Now, part of the Build Back Better plan that Senator Joe Manchin has been opposing is involved around that child tax credit, not only expanding it, but extending it as well. Now that now looks to come up under the point, something we'll talk about more this morning, that is about to go away. Now that's one of the last fringes of economic liquidity coming into the economy that people are spending, right, to buy goods, products, and services. Of course, if we take a look at supply chain disruptions, you know, when you have, and as we explained previously, when you inject a lot of capital into the economy, people are going to do what with it? They're going to go spend it. They don't save it. They go spend it. <laughs> and so they went out and started buying big screen televisions and computers and laptops, and we're all going to work from home. So we went and bought all new stuff for the house. Um, you know, that's great. The problem is, is that the economy was shut down. So nobody was producing anything. This led to supply chain disruptions. Um, you can't get products delivered, can't get the products you want. And so now that's starting to reverse. Uh, yesterday, we saw the PMI indexes come out. We've also seen some supply uh, manufacturing indexes come out as well. Those are all starting to show a decline in this supply chain problem. Inventories are starting to rise as demand starts to taper off here a bit. So inventories are starting to catch up and we're starting to see supplier delivery times and other things starting to come down. So this, it looks like we're now working through 
that supply chain disruption and we're kind of getting things back to normal. So as more of this liquidity comes out of the market, demand will fall and that's going to lead to an increase in supply. Now, that's a good thing because things will get back to normal, but it's a bad thing because it's also deflationary. That's going to lead to slower economic growth. Revenues for corporations will stabilize or decline. And of course, this becomes a problem for the Fed now, which the Fed has now kind of jumped the shark and said, hey, we're going to start aggressively hiking rates and we're going to start cutting QE because of inflation. Well, they may be doing this right at the point that peak inflation starts to roll over and decline. So um, is there a real issue here of a policy error by the Fed? I think that risk has gone up rather dramatically. And this would not be the first time. If you go back in history, look at any time the Fed has started hiking rates, they tend to do it at the wrong end of the cycle and they create a policy error. And this leads to a market decline. Last good example of this was in 2018. The Fed was hiking rates in September. They said, hey, we're nowhere close to the neutral rate. Market said, yes, you are, and declined 20%. And immediately, the Fed backed off of hiking rates and started cutting rates. So again, this is history. And the history always suggests the Fed is overly aggressive on rate hikes and monetary policy, and they create a market event. Okay, having said that, now we're talking about 2022. That's what we're looking forward to as we go into this year. Years following, now this is an important statistic. In, if we go back in history and look at years where we've had a very low volatility advance. Now last year, 2021, the biggest drawdown we had all year long was just a little bit more than 5%. So a very low volatility year. Now if we go back and look at all the years in history where you had a very low volatility year, what happened the year after? the year after saw relatively larger drawdowns, as much as 20% or more. In other words, the year following a year of low volatility tends to have higher volatility. We've talked about this before on the show, that low volatility begets high volatility. So now that we're leaving a year of low volatility, what does 2022 look like? Well, that could be a year that we see substantially more volatility. Now, that wouldn't be surprising, again, Tighter monetary policy, slower economic growth, disappointment in earnings expectations, which are still very elevated, uh, higher inflationary pressures, rising interest rates, just a, a lot of, as we talked about in yesterday's uh, blog post, as well as on the show yesterday, lots of headwinds to deal with as we get into 2022. So it's something to be aware of. Again, not saying the market's going to crash, but a year of higher volatility and potentially a year where you see a, a 10, 15, or 20% drawdown in the markets. That's not uncommon, by the way. Uh, a 5 to 10% drawdown in any year is absolutely normal. So a 10 or 20% drawdown, certainly not outside the realm of possibility, well within the norms. Now, it's going to feel like a crash because when you come out of a year where you have no volatility to speak of, a 15 or 20% drawdown is going to feel absolutely terrible. So this is why we always talk about risk management on the show. We always talk about you know being careful of how much exposure you're, you're taking on right now, where you're chasing stocks, because these stocks have been very, very elevated for a very long time. Valuations are, are abnormally high. And if you have something that disrupts the market, a credit cycle event, a geopolitical event, something that scares the, the investor attitude, 
it could lead to a very sharp sudden decline in the markets. And again, it, the problem is, is that markets move so quickly now, you're not going to have a lot of time to adjust for it. So you're going to have to kind of do that risk management in expectation or in advance of what you think may, may cause that problem. That's going to be that's going to be a tougher challenge this year. So again, you know, not trying to be bearish here, but it is worth paying attention to the fact that years of very low volatility do beget years of higher volatility. And that's something we want to be careful of as we go further into 2022. Midterm elections could certainly upset the apple cart as well. So we've got a lot of things that are going on this year that could create higher volatility. Just something that we need to be thinking about in terms of how much risk we're taking in our portfolios. What type of stocks do you own? Do you own high, do you own high beta, high volatility type stocks? Stocks that can move 10 or 20% in a day or two? Or do you own lower volatility stocks that tend to hold up better during market declines? And those are kind of the things that you want to start thinking about in terms of allocation. And we're going to get into more of this in the show over the course of the next couple of weeks. But coming back from the break, we're going to pick up with Danny Ratliff. I do want to talk about this child tax credit in particular, as it does impact liquidity. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year candid coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, it is the Real Investment Show. Uh, get by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog posts are out this morning. We're uh, last two days, uh, today and yesterday, we're talking about the risk of 2022 as we kind of look into the new year. And uh, Danny, haven't seen you since last year. Yeah, no, it was pretty nice, wasn't it? <laughs> so Danny Ratliff joining me this morning as well, certified financial planner. Um, you know, so as we, as I was saying at the kind of at the open this morning, you know, as we look into 2022, kind of the year ahead, uh, you know, a couple of questions really come up, which is one, what's going to really define the year? And, you know, that is one of the big questions that we have to think about because if you take a look at 2020, and 2021, what defined those two years in particular? And I think you could really boil, there's, there's, you know, you could make a lot of cases, right? But I think it really all boils down to liquidity and speculation. And the reason I say that is because if you take a look at the surge of liquidity that came in, not just from global governments, um, you know, around the world, but also private equity and everybody else, we even retail investors because they were given capital to invest. Um, you know, we saw a lot of speculation in the markets, record IPOs, record SPAC issuances, record call option buying, record margin debt. I mean, just kind of no matter how you want to measure speculation, I think that 2020, 2021 really kind of 
showed that to a great degree in terms of investor attitudes. Now, of course, it was all, and again, that's all a function of liquidity. You can't speculate if you don't have liquidity, and governments and Federal Reserve, central banks around the world made sure that there was a tremendous amount of liquidity in the system. So if that defined 2020, 2021, what will define 2022? And I think the interesting thing about this is that all that liquidity that was injected into the economy in 2020, 2021 is now reversing. And the last remnants of that is this child tax credit extension and expansion. Uh, you know, the, under, the expanded unemployment benefits have now run out. Um, you know, checks to households, they're not coming. And even in the BBB plan, the Build Back Better plan, uh, there's not really a whole lot of money in that being sent directly to, to households except for the expansion and extension of the child tax credit. And that's now on the chopping block because Senator Joe Manchin has pretty much said he will not do anything to vote for the BBB bill if that's in there. So what does that mean to individuals and, you know, what does this kind of suggest to the economy over the, over the course of the next 12 months? Danny, what do you think? Well, I think, you know, we talked about this big inflation push, and a lot of it came from many different ways. And the child tax credit certainly helped a lot of families that were under the poverty line. You know, I think studies show that it, it actually brought about half of the families under the poverty line up above it. But one thing we knew that it would actually increase inflation. Right. So, you know, you're talking about liquidity. Liquidity comes in a, a number of different ways, obviously, with sending checks to households, sending and increasing the checks to families that have children. So previously, we saw that these checks were $2,000 annually. Um, it was for children at 16 and younger. The new new child tax credit actually increased that. So if you have a child six and under, you actually receive $3,600. If you had one up to 17, so not 16, they actually increased it by one year then you would actually be able to get $3,000, $1,000 more. So this is pretty substantial. Like you mentioned in the first yep. segment, people are buying TVs or doing lots of different things. Yep. So it, it, people It's not are, really going to child support. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to a number of different things. But we saw what happened with that is that the more people have access to capital, the more expensive things get. Yeah, because people are spending in that supply and demand scenario, and not to mention well, supply chain constraints. I mean, there's a whole number of things. Well, here. And again, it's a good point. Like you made the point is that the, you know this child tax credit you know lifted 40 percent of people above the poverty line for about 12 minutes. And what did the poverty line do? It, it, it rose up. Yeah, and, and now they're back under the poverty line because yeah. the, you know wages didn't rise as fast as inflation. And again, this is. You know, not really surprised. I, if actually, we actually wrote an article on this. If you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, we actually wrote an article about this. So if you just type in poverty line at the, at the uh, search bar, it'll come up. But we wrote an article in March of last year talking about this whole idea of the expanded jack tax credit would lift people above the poverty line until everybody else raised prices. And this is the one thing we always forget about free money. If you inject free capital into an economy, Producers know this, and we've had great experience with this with colleges, right? As soon as the government, we didn't have a college tuition inflation problem until 2008. Now, what happened in 2008? Well, that was when the government took over the student loan program because prior to that, you had to go to the bank, you had to qualify for the student loan, you had to go through the credit checks, you had to do all this type of stuff, and the bank would only lend you so much money to go to use for student loans. It had to be used for very specific things. Well, as soon as the government took it over, 
colleges go, wait, you're just giving free money to anybody that asks for it and they can use it for anything they want. Like they can go to Cabo and spend the weekend partying on college loan money. Okay, great. No problem. Tuition's going up. And that's why college tuition skyrocketed. And now college tuition is like, oh my gosh, college is unaffordable. No, it's not. Just stop giving people free money and colleges will stop raising their tuition. It's not difficult to understand. It's supply and demand. So if you give people a lot of free money, um, child tax credits are a great example of this. Um, the Democrats consistently say, well, working class families need money for child care and, and daycare support. Yeah, they do. Perfect. Give them money. And as soon as you give them money, what do you think the child tax, uh, the child care providers are going to do? Right? They're going to go, oh, they're getting free money? Yeah, my rate's now $50 an hour. My daycare services are now $100 an hour. Whatever it is, it's going to inflate that money you give them away. The only way that you can increase people's wealth and prosperity at the bottom end of the earnings channel, and that's the 50% and less of the income earning economy, is to give them a hand up, not a hand out. You've got to give them the ability to work and earn more, give them skill sets. That's what allows them to prosper better. Giving them free money actually makes things worse, and we're seeing that now because of inflation. Well, that's a big part of why Senator Manchin hasn't signed exactly. on to this bill. He, he, says, he, he said, hey, I want it. these people to have to work in, a, in order to get this check. Right, and, and he, so, understand, he understands the problem. Yeah, and, and this is a problem that's going to continue. You know, look, some of these things are certainly needed, but the issues surrounding is, is how it's actually done. And so, like you mentioned in the first segment, liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. Mm -hmm. And you have it taken away a number of different ways. You have it taken away by the checks not coming in, but higher rates, that's going to take away liquidity as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's going to pose another issue. Uh, it's going to be interesting, you know, but one of the things, you know, back to the child tax credits real quick is that, you know, those are set to expire when? December 15th. December 15th. Okay. So th they've already expired. They've expired. Okay. Um, what is the, is there tax consequences for that with people that were receiving these monthly checks coming in? Uh, well, I think a, people, a lot of people are going to be surprised. So historically it was, if you made, if you're a family, you made over $400,000, you were phased out of receiving these checks. If you're single, head of household, it was 200. When they lowered those numbers to 150 and 112, 500, if you're head of household, 75,000, if you're uh, single and with children. So the numbers went down considerably. And so a lot of people still receive checks that you may actually have to pay back. Right. So, or they're going to, you're not going to get the refund you've historically received, things of that nature. So if you weren't, you know, some people receive checks. I talked to these people. Yeah, my wife received one. Yeah, and they were like, "Wait a second, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense here." Um, you could call. You could, you could turn it off. Um, a lot of people still receive them. I talked to numerous CPAs today. Yeah, deal with it at the end of the year. Right. Um, and I think that's what most people will do. But there's a lot of people who may be caught surprised here, and you may actually end up owing a little bit more than what you expected. Because remember, just think: if you have three kids under six, mm -hmm. thirty-six hundred dollars for each one. That's pretty considerable. It, it's, a, it's a lot of excess money. And again, if you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, you may wind up in a tax situation. And again, most people don't have tax money saved up. You know, they, they're they're all, you know, a vast majority of Americans kind of use the IRS as a free savings account um, with zero interest. You know, <laughs> and they're just hoping that at the end of the year, you know, they're going to get a, a tax refund coming back. Right. And they depend on that tax refund to catch up on bills or you know, go buy a television or whatever it is. And you may be surprised a lot of people actually wind up owing tax money this year. Same thing for the unemployment benefits. A lot of people that were people receiving may wind up owing money that they didn't expect to have to owe. 
yeah, I suspect we'll see a lot of that. Now, the good news was that they only sent half of that mm-hmm. on a monthly basis, and they started back, you know, last year. What was it, July? Right. So it wasn't something that was just continuous, and they they received it all at once. The remainder of remainder of it, you had to receive once you filed your taxes. Right, and this and, and importantly though, this was also an important change is that for the first time, you no, know, normally the child tax credit you got a tax credit, kind of a refund at on, the end of the year. On, at the end of the year when you filed your taxes. So, you know, and this is why a lot of people got money back from the government. If you take a look at, you know, everybody's always talking about the rich need to pay their fair share, right? Ninety um, percent of the taxes are paid by the top ten percent of income earners. The actual bottom fifty percent of the economy pay actually no income taxes or very very small uh, percentage of the total income taxes, and the bottom twenty percent actually get money back every year. And a lot of that's from the child tax credit. At the end of the year, they would get money back from the government because of that child tax credit. This was the first year that we actually started kind of advancing the child tax credit um, before the end of the year. Yeah. And, and which is what also the Biden administration wanted to do with the Build Back Better plan was to continue that process. Well, when these things started, it was needed in some ways, right? I mean, you saw the pandemic, well, people out of work. Well, let's 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 back up here. It, you know, I, I want to be careful saying it was needed. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and I'm not and I'm not saying it wasn't needed, right? The government made a decision to shut down the economy. Correct. Okay, right. We we literally made a decision to put people out of work. So to your point, it's needed, right? If I'm putting you, if I'm, if I'm the government and I'm putting you out of work, I should pay you. Okay. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. The problem now is we're past that. We're now back to full employment. Now it's no longer needed. What we need to be doing is figuring out how to solve these job opening problems. And why do we have record job openings? It's because we don't have the labor skills to fill those jobs. So as I said before, If you want to actually help the bottom 50% of the economy, give them skills. Don't give them money. Help them fill those job openings that we have a record. We have 3 million more job openings than we have employees in the labor force. There's no reason why anybody doesn't have a higher paying job. But this is a function of make America work, right? Well, that's the key. Make America work. Now you have people out of work, don't want to get back to it. It's no fun to work. Don't want to work like, for I mean, somebody. We're here at 6 o'clock in the morning. Who wants to work at 6 in the morning? <laughs> I don't know. I'll get a lot more done. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year candid coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Real Science Roberts. Stady Ratliff joining me as well. Shifting gears here. Um, so as we talk about 2021 and 2020, we talked about the fact that it was, you know, two years particularly that were driven by liquidity and speculation. 
And as we were just talking about the last segment, you know, one of the last remaining remnants of that liquidity in the markets is the child tax credit, which is now going to has now expired and doesn't look like that's going to be um, re-extended here, at least at this point. Now, again, anything's possible. We'll see what happens with Joe Manchin, but he's really kind of the kingpin in terms of, you know, driving what happens with the BBB bill uh, over the course of the next several months. Now, also, as we get closer to midterm elections, uh, you know, there's a, a large number of Democrats that are not going to be rerunning for their seats. That puts a lot of pressure on, the, on Democrats for the upcoming election cycle. So, again, with approval ratings at historically low levels for the administration, um, this is going to make the challenge of getting reelected and maintaining control of the House and Senate much more difficult come this November. So we may see a lot less activity um, in the next few months in terms of doing things that may, you know, work against those reelection efforts. So liquidity is going to be one of the big the big issues this year. And then, of, of course, the fact that you just have less liquidity coming in the system. Now you also have the Federal Reserve talking about hiking interest rates and tapering their balance sheet, which is further reducing liquidity to the markets. So having said that, you know, I think we need to start. And, and as we talked about the last couple of days, it's not just liquidity. There's a lot of other factors, inflation, higher rates, et cetera. Um, they're also turning into headwinds for the market rather than tailwinds. So that kind of brings up the conversation of where to think about investing money this year as opposed to the last couple of years. You know, the last couple of years, a lot of speculation. We saw in 2020 a lot of the stocks that were this disruptor stocks, right? So the ARC type, uh, Kathy Wood type stocks, uh, Square and, and um, Snowflake and a lot of these other companies you know, have massive rates of return, uh, fell apart last year. Um, Kathy Wood's uh, ARC fund, she was heralded the top investor in 2020. Uh, she underperformed the market by about 30 40% last year. So, you know, a, a change in attitude. Um, meme stocks have also lost their mojo, at least for the, for the, meme, for, for the meme time. No pun intended. Okay. <laughs> um, Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. <laughs> um, but so so now as we think about 2020, what? Uh, sorry, sorry, 2022, what does that kind of look like? And Danny, you're starting to get some questions about this as well, aren't you? We are. You know, it's all, it's the interesting thing though is that this is something that we're we're always discussing and thinking about, like where to go next. Where is the, you know, Wayne Gretzky used to say, uh, "Don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where it's going." And I think that's a very important thing that as an investor, you always need to think about. But there's a psychological shift. Each year, you know, going from uh, the new year that, oh, things are just going to automatically change. And I think that, you know, looking at the, the economic landscape, this year will be different than last year, which every year is. But that can change at any given point in time. So I always find it kind of interesting when you look at New Year's resolutions, look at all the things that are occurring. And we think that, oh, automatically this big change has to happen now because it is a new year. So don't get too far off base, I think, is one of the big things that we typically suggest with people is that, okay, you know, we're always looking for the next the next stock, the next opportunity, the next asset class. Yeah. It, it doesn't have to just be because now it's January 1st. Right. But, you know, I do think there is a, a, a major shift occurring in the markets. I mean, we look, we're, we're at our first point in time that we could see negative yields two years in a row since 1958. Mm -hmm. That's a very long period of time right. that we've had a bull market in bonds. Right. And to see two consecutive years where we could potentially see some negative activity or, or negative uh, trend 
would be, you know, a, a big change. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, that so a lot of people are saying, oh, no, we don't want to be in any bonds at all. But that could be a mistake as well, because right. now we have this liquidity issue, which could be a problem for, for equity markets. Right. So I think that, you know, looking at these things, that active money management, kind of things you discussed in the first segment, are truly important and, and probably gonna, going to be even more so in this year to be very nimble. Mm -hmm. You know, people say, what, what's your forecast for 2022? I mean, I know you get this every single day and all these forecasts are coming out and everybody's a little bit different, but probably very similar in the same. But, you know, my biggest thing is telling people, look, we need to remain extremely nimble, take advantage of opportunities while they are there and don't get so set that we feel like we have to be married to this for a long period of time. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big things, you know, we, we've talked about this on the show before is that, you know, a lot of people right now, you're right. You know, all the analysts are coming out. We talked about Byron Wien's, uh, you know, 10 predictions for the year. You know, everybody's coming out right now with their predictions for the year. You know, S&P 5000, S&P 5500, you know, whatever the number is, they're always bullish, right? It's always it's because it's more fun to be bullish, right? Just yeah. markets are going up and you're going to be right more often than you're wrong. So it's better to be better to err to optimism. But the problem with that becomes the fact that really, to your point, predictions are only good for about a week at the at, at most, right? Uh, we talked about the study they did back in the 90s of astrologers and tarot card readers and meteorologists and anybody that does predictions. And the most accurate predictor was meteorologists for three days. So, yep. you know, trying to predict anything out of the course of a year when you and especially in the year where you've got you know, will the Fed actually wind up tapering? Will they actually wind up raising interest rates? Will they? I mean, there's there's a lot of, you know, questions about these activities. You know, what will happen in the midterms? What will happen, um, you know, later this year in terms of the economy? Will it be as strong as people expect? Will there be a geopolitical event? Will China attack, you know, the U.S.? You know, whatever. I mean, it's just there's so many things that can occur. And this is the things that, you know, ultimately you've got to be prepared for because, if everything remains status quo today, just as is, nothing changed at all, we could predict the rest of this year and, and markets would trend with inflation probably for the rest of the year. But the one thing that always what, what creates, right, what creates the bear market, what creates a decline in markets is when something that is exogenous and unexpected impacts the, the psychology of the markets. Now, remember, markets are driven by psychology, buyers and sellers. And as long as people are willing to buy stuff, market prices will go up. It's when something occurs that's unexpected and the buyers go, hey, wait a minute. I'm not going to maybe I should wait here and see how this works out. And better yet, maybe I should sell something. <laughs> And when they start selling something and there's no buyers, that's how you get a decline in the markets. And, and, um, and this is why we've seen declines in the markets be very sharp over the last couple of years is because there's so many people willing to buy but nobody willing to sell. It creates these very big gaps because all of a sudden when everybody wants to sell because of some event, right, some exogenous occurrence, the buyers aren't there where the sellers, you know, sellers are wanting to sell Apple at 150 and the buyers go, yeah, I'll buy it from you at 100. And that's how you get these big gaps down in these stocks. And we've seen last year in particular, we saw a lot of days where stocks would open down 10, 15 percent. It was not uncommon. And that's that lack of liquidity in the market. So the thing we've got to be careful of this year is getting married to Danny's point getting married to an allocation. This is the problem with buy and hold. 
you know, you may be a, a buy and hold investor. That's fine and dandy. And you're invested long growth stocks right now. And, you know, there's already been a very subtle change in the markets. Now, whether or not it sticks, we'll see. But we're starting to see value actually have a little bit of better, better performance. Yesterday was a good example of this. Yeah, um, speaking of value, you know, that's been something that people have been saying for the last several years. There's going to be that shift, you know, every 10 years or so yeah. each decade. You see a shift from value to growth and vice versa. And if you would have just said, hey, I'm going to set it in value because this is where everything is going, you would you would have missed out on quite a bit of opportunity. Last now, year, for sure. Pandemic changed the dynamic significantly. You know, obviously, people working from home, different types of growth stocks, tech companies, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, so that's why, you know, being nimble and being able to shift and not getting too set in your ways on these things, especially with investing, can be trouble. Yeah. Look, the couch potato portfolio, I think, is dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last couple of years for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and so where, you know, kind of to your point about Wayne Gretzky, you know, where do we think the puck's going to go to this year? I think there's a reasonable argument to be made for value. We're not buying it yet. We're ne we already own some value stocks in our portfolio, but we're not aggressively going into value yet because that hasn't proven itself out. But I think there's a reasonable possibility if things do work out and these headwinds do start to mature in the markets people will start to migrate from growth to value for a risk off position. Um, you know, and to Danny's point about bonds, you know, I think there's a reasonable expectation that bonds may hold up this year as well, because when the Fed uh, tends to hike rates and tighten monetary policy, bonds tend to do better. Why? Because there's a risk off attitude in the markets. If the, if the, if the monetary punch bowl is being taken away from the stock market, I want to be in a place of safety. That's treasury bonds, not stocks. So, again, a lot of these things. And there was also a good article out this morning. Higher inflation leads to lower PEs on stocks. It's absolutely true. It's not because stock prices are going up and earnings are going up faster than stock prices because stock prices correct when there's, when there's increasing rates of inflation in the markets. So there's a, there's a lot of expectation this year, and as we talked about earlier, Years of low volatility tend to beget a year of high volatility. I think this year, when you're thinking about your allocation, be thinking about more adding more defense to your portfolio. Now, you may lag the market this year. It's very possible. If we don't have a correction this year and you're more defensive in your portfolio, you may lag the return. If the market's up 10, you might be up 7 or 8. But if the market's down 10, you'll probably be a lot happier that you actually had some defense in your portfolio. What's defense? Staples, utilities, real estate, finance, maybe. But yield curves are an important thing to think about when it comes to finance. But think about bonds as well. Be right back after the break. We'll wrap up this conversation in the show with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year candid coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, 
and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So this morning, so just kind of wrapping up this conversation um, about, you know, investing in 2022, kind of where to look forward. I, I think there's really two important things to think about. First of all, is to not make year-long predictions and say, I'm going to invest everything today in growth stocks because I think this entire year is going to be a repeat of 2021. I think that's a dangerous thing to do um, because a lot of things are changing. Those tailwinds are becoming headwinds. And... You know, likewise, just making any kind of long-term prediction on anything is also very difficult in the markets because you're really just kind of speculating on a coin flip of an outcome. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, to Danny's point, I think the, the thing to really be focused on is not making drastic changes to your portfolio from last year right now. Um, if you take, you know, our equity models have not changed a whole lot. We made a few changes yesterday, mostly on our bond side of our portfolio. We trimmed back some of our trading S&P long yesterday. And we'll probably close out the rest of that probably this week. But outside of that, our underlying holdings, we're not making a lot of changes to because the market hasn't really told us what it wants to do yet. And I think that's really kind of the key thing. You know, every, you know, all Wall Street's trying to, the media is trying to tell you, oh, this year is going to be the year that, you know, X, X, Y performed the best. Who knows? Nobody really knows. Too many things can happen. There's too many, there's too many moving parts to the market. The best thing to do is, to wait for the market to tell you that something is occurring and then begin moving in that money, moving money in that direction. So, you know, again, trying to predict, you know, well ahead of the curve is difficult. Now, as I said in the last segment, I do think value may have a play this year if we do have a, a year where volatility picks up, where there's more of a risk off attitude in markets. Value oriented stocks should do well. Right. Those should perform better stocks that have very stable earnings. You know, every year they just kind of crank out earnings year in, year out. Uh, those stocks should perform better. A lot of these there's a lot of stocks. We have more stocks in the market today than ever before in history that trade at more than 20 times price to sales. Um, that is an astronomically high valuation. It's something that no company can actually grow sales fast enough to keep up with. So those stocks could be in a lot of trouble. So think a little bit about valuations in your portfolio and maybe start thinking a little bit, you know, adding a little bit more to your portfolio of stocks with better valuations, higher return on equity, um, you know, maybe even provide a dividend yield. Uh, stocks that provide dividend yields tend to do a little bit better than stocks that don't. Maybe look at some of last year's laggards. Uh, those stocks tend to perform better the year after they have a, a year of lagging. They tend to perform better. So there's quite a few stocks, AT&T, Viacom, others had you know terrible performance years last year, actually showing some signs of life here over the last couple of weeks. Too early to tell if it's a new trend. It's a bounce right now. But, you know, 7% yield on a stock, not too bad, right? So just some things to kind of think about. Yeah, don't, don't do the old school morning star yeah. route either right so a lot of people look and say wow this is a really good stock last year historically it's done great that doesn't mean it's going to do that great in the future so you know 
take a look, find op, find those opportunities. You know, we have, we tend to do the opposite of what we should do. Right. I had a phone call, you know, last night, actually, somebody wanted to get out of the market in October, ready to get back in now. So, well, why? And reminded them of the conversation we had in October. Right. And, hey, we're not going to just, we're, we're getting out at, you know, inopportune times. It was right after 5% correction right. in September. Now things have gone, gotten much better. And so it makes it feel better to get in, but that's not always the right thing to do at specific times. And so same thing when we pick stocks, just because something was down, treat it as an opportunity. Hey, Macy's has a red apple sale. You're going to go shopping, right? right. Well, uh, let's be careful of that. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, and you're right. Well, but, true. But, but yeah. there's, there's, you know, there's a, a very important rule. Um, and in fact, on Friday, we've got our investor resolutions coming out on Friday. And one of those resolutions is to buy not is, is to buy damaged opportunity, not damaged stocks. Correct. Now, and, and to Danny's point, there's a lot of stocks that got that are good quality companies that got hit hard for one reason or another, maybe just out of favor in the markets. That's a damaged opportunity. Uh, we saw this a couple of times last year with a company we own called Abbott. Um, Abbott got hit hard a couple of times last year, but we use that as an opportunity to add more to the stock, and it's continued to perform well. That was a damaged opportunity, not a damaged stock. There are a lot of stocks in the market that are damaged stocks. Yeah, and big difference. And, and big difference. So make sure you know the make sure you understand the difference, right? Um, you know, but but to your point, Danny, it's it's you know as we start thinking about the year ahead, you know we need to be responsive to the markets, not reactive. And there is a difference to that. Just again, kind of, you know, when the markets are down 5%, you're going, I got, I need to get out of the market. That's being reactive. If the market's down 5% for reasons, serious reasons, a credit cycle event, you know, there's a, a change to the bullish psychology, whatever it is, then you make changes. That's being responsive. And so let the market, it's, it's okay. You're not going to catch the absolute top. You're not going to buy the absolute bottom of the markets, but allow the market to tell you what it wants to do and where it's headed and then make adjustments accordingly, reduce risk, increase risk, rebalance portfolios. But be careful just chasing stuff because it was up last year. To Danny's point, one of the worst things that you can do as an investor is to basically jump from the frying pan into the fire. And that's, chasing last year's hot performers. Generally, last year's hot performers tend to wind up lagging the market. You may have a, a, a group that outperforms for one or two years. Uh, a group called Callan uh, Investments. If you go look up Callan Periodic Table of Investments, just Google it, right? C-A-L-L-A-N. Just Google it. And it'll bring up a chart. It looks like a periodic table of the elements, right? But it just it, it shows you the returns of large cap, mid cap, small cap, international, emerging markets, bonds, et cetera. By, by year. And what you'll see if you look at it is that emerging markets may be on the top for two years and then it's at the very bottom of returns the next year. And then it goes back to the middle, then the top, then back to the bottom. You know, same thing for the S&P, same thing for large cap, mid cap, small cap. They're all over the board. And so the problem with chasing last year's hot winners is that you're very likely to buy the year that it actually underperforms. So be careful about chasing winners. Sometimes buying damaged opportunities work out better. Yeah, so. that's absolutely right. So, yeah, baby does get thrown out with the bathwater occasionally. Occasionally. Look for that opportunity. <laughs> exactly. So real quick before we, before we have to wrap up the show, 
Uh, again, those investor resolutions will be out on Friday. Um, we've also got a couple of other articles on the website now talking about headwinds and risk, and, and those are on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com, to kind of help you get your thoughts together for the year. Um, but before we do that, you know, one of the things we were talking about earlier is liquidity. And, you know, people seem to have a whole lot of capital last year to go out and buy stuff. You know, I'm getting a child tax credit. So, you know, my three-year-old needs a 48-inch screen high-def television, you know, for sure. Um, every kid needs that and, and a new computer and laptop and iPhone. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it helps. And, and an iPad, evidently. And, and an iPad, yes. Uh, babysitting, of course. Um but, you know, a lot of liquidity coming in from, you know, the government. But even that wasn't enough. We actually saw people tapping into retirement funds because they were given access to them by the government on a tax-free, on a penalty-free basis. So they took advantage of that as well. Well, they were. You know, in the year of the pandemic, you were able to actually make distributions prior to 59 and a half without taking penalties. You still pay taxes. However, and you were able to defer those over a three-year period. Now, we're still seeing that trend is, is certainly there. In fact, we usually see about 25% leakage out of these 401ks and IRAs. This last year, we saw closer to 31%. And so what that means is that somebody's taking funds out prior to 59 and a half. They're not paying them back. Maybe they switch jobs. They cash funds out versus rolling them over or keeping them in the 401k. They take a loan that they don't pay off. Um, they're taking these funds out, incurring a 10% penalty and paying taxes. And what we see is that over time, this significantly reduces retirement balances. So this problem can be much greater long-term because of some of the th actions that we do right now. And people use this as a piggy bank, as a savings account. You know, we always recommend having a, an emergency fund, building that up. You want to take advantage of whatever your employer is going to give you in, in the form of a match. Make sure you're at least getting that. Anything above and beyond, if you don't have a savings account built up, start putting those funds to work build that up so god forbid something does happen you have the access to capital without reaching into these funds that typically most people are putting in pre-tax you're going to face these penalties and it's just not the right way to go in fact you know two years ago richard and i were talking about creating a financial vulnerability cushion mm -hmm. going above and beyond not knowing that covid was going to occur this big pandemic and, and life would change drastically but just because valuations were high and now we're still at that stage i think where you may want to hey if you're out of work uh, the AC goes out, the car breaks down, something happens, just life happens. You have access to funds without having to incur additional penalties by dipping into that 401k or those accounts that are really designed for retirement. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we already know that balances are way less than what they should be. The average American doesn't save nearly enough. So let's set ourselves up to, you know, prosper and benefit from different you know actions that we can take now versus doing something that we're only going to regret later. And you're giving more money away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, too. In a lot of cases, if you know you make a 401k contribution, you wind up bringing home the same amount of money. Well, you, when you're doing pre-tax, that's right. right. Yeah, so, so a lot of times you don't actually realize that you don't, you don't face that, the, the big, you know, ouch, like, oh, my goodness, you know, I don't have nearly as much money. My paycheck's going to go way down because I'm contributing here because you're not paying those taxes on those funds if you are putting pre-tax, which is what most people do. Now, we also advise people look at the Roth option, uh, putting funds aside with the after tax, especially right now, we still look like looks like we have a window for a period of time that we're not going to see higher taxes. Mm -hmm. So we should likely take advantage of you know potentially this tax code that we have, uh, putting funds in after tax, giving yourself a little bit more flexibility later down the road. That's something we certainly advise. Uh, looking at all the options that you have and giving yourself flexibility in retirement, not having to pull from everything, you know that's going to be taxable when you retire. Yeah. 
That wraps up the show for the day. Danny Ratliff, uh, thanks so much. Of course, get by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Of course, uh, on our website now, we got our blog post out from yesterday and today, actually talking about the risk of the markets this year, right? How the headwinds are now starting to mount up. What does that mean for market returns? And again, thinking about you know the risk we may need to deal with this year. Also, on Friday, um, our report will be on our investor resolutions for the year. That'll be out as well. Make sure you subscribe to our daily commentary. That comes out every morning at 7.30. Get you ready, primed up for the markets. Always little interesting tidbits in that for you. Also, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. And check out, if we have so much stuff going on now, also check out SimpleVisor.com. That's our full, innovative um, advisor program for you as well, all online. So tons of stuff at the website. Go check it all out, realinvestmentadvice.com. I'm going to see you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world